after the after the uh, surgeon said that the patient was happy, Enrico said the patient was happy because they didn't know they could be happier. And I think in photography, this applies that says you think you're good until you find out what good is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. Today on this special episode, we're going all the way to Sydney, Australia, to interview two fantastic human beings down there. Um, I'm very excited about this because, you know, you have, you have the cell phone, then you have 2D photos, and then you have Clinical Imaging Australia. These guys have just brought the next level to 2D photos, and today we're going to be climbing into this in great detail, both with Dr. Peter Callan, plastic surgeon, who is really in the forefront of pushing high-quality 2D photography, and then with the technical aspect from clinical imaging themselves, that's with Woodrow Wilson. So, um, Peter and Woodrow, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks for having us. So, guys, let's... um, Let's just climb straight into this. I know you, you guys both have presentations you want to share. Why are we even having this talk about 2D photography? Peter, if you want to kick off. Well, I think the difference between rhinoplasty photography and medical photography in general and is that not only we want to be able to take a good photograph, but it has to be more than a good photograph because not only do we need perfect photography, but we need two, two perfectly matched photographs at different times. So as the only uh, change is, that's communicated is the surgical intervention. If you don't have two perfectly matched photographs for colour or exposure or uh, magnification, perspective, and Woodrow will go through this, you can never really compare because what you're doing is uh, you've got no idea what the intervention is because there's a huge amount of variation and distortion that you can actually achieve without even doing a rhinoplasty on somebody and do a before and after and the photo can look like you've done something. So mm. Woodrow will tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with all your points, Peter. And I think when I got into this uh, humbly in 2013, going to my first scientific congress with uh, a lot of plastic surgeons, I was really alarmed at... This discrepancy between Professor X or Professor Y on the uh, the lectern, what they were saying, and then what I was seeing in their before and afters, and it wasn't that it was just a bad before and after; it just was not very scientific. Yeah. And uh, you know, all these years later, I can say the problem still exists, um, but it's been amplified with social media and marketing, and it's like poured kerosene onto that problem that I saw all the years ago. So before we get into all the technical side. It's really just alarming just how much bad photography out there there is. And then that must lead into bad practice, bad outcomes, bad record keeping. The list goes on. So it's a very exciting and interesting space. I have a question for you. You said there between Professor X and Professor Y. I think there's also a terrible discrepancy between Professor X and Professor X. It's just unbelievable (laughs) that people put photographs Mm. of the same patient. And Mm. it doesn't look the same whatsoever. No, I, I agree. Okay, to add so. to that, Cameron, we're in a business where we're communicating with people and we may be communicating with the outside world, but we're also communicating to our peers. And why should I believe anything that anybody says if they can't even show me a decent photograph of what they've done, of what they've done? So um, there's an issue there too. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, Peter, we're really looking forward to what you have to share with us uh, and then we'll move over to Woodrow after this. Okay. Um, thanks very much, Cameron, and thanks very much for the invitation. Um, Photography and Rhinoplasty uh, is the title of my talk. I'm just letting you know where I'm from, which is near Melbourne, um, just south of Melbourne in a place called Geelong, and this is where I am, and feeling a bit left out here with two um, South Africans, one, a, one an expat and one a South African, but I did work in South Africa for a while, as Cameron and Woodrow both know, in near Durban, you know, in St Mary's Hospital, Marion Hill. Uh, which was a great experience in my final year of medicine. And, when, um, when was that, Peter? 19, I'm not going to say, <laughs> 1983, 1983, my final year of medicine. So there you go. You, you set me up for that. All right. <laughs> um, rhinoplasty and photography, uh, as we mentioned before, it's a specialised field, I think. Um, 
It's not just about how to take a perfect photograph, but it's how to take two perfectly matched photographs, um, sometimes many months apart or even years apart. And they need to be perfectly matched for perspective, size, colour, exposure and so on and so forth. There are so many variables that we're experts in rhinoplasty, but we're not necessarily experts in photography. Um, I think master this, invest in being a master surgeon, a master photographer, master your website and social media, and you can say really goodbye to paying for Google AdWords, real self advertising and other platforms because your website and what you have on it is, is the biggest uh, tool you have. Um, the others may help. Without this, um, you really have no way of uh, telling people what you do. I used to think I was pretty good at photography. This is one from 16 years ago that I took, a before and after, and um, obviously uh, it's a reasonable photography, I guess, but there's a lot of uh, flash off the face, there's shadows behind the patient, her head's not square in the right one, um, but uh, the backgrounds are different colours. Uh, there's a lot of difference between them. and. This is um, what I thought was reasonable. Ten years later, I thought I was a bit better. Um, and uh, so I, I got rid of the shadow problem. Uh, backgrounds are a little bit different. Um, I think the skin color exposure is not too bad. So I was able to get away with this and I thought that was reasonably good. And then I met Woodrow and I had to go up a huge, uh, a, another level because the problem with Woodrow is that he doesn't know how much he knows and he assumes that we know as much as he does. Oops. So <laughs> he says so much that it goes washes over you a lot and a lot of what he does is so second nature to him that it, to us um, we don't realise the brilliance of it until we've done it. So I thought I'd go through it in, in my evolution of understanding and how I set up a studio and there is a logical order to it. Now I'm going to go through it um, slowly um, just to show you. So step one is you need a dedicated area. It can be an area and not a, it doesn't have to be a room. But you need to be able to photograph the subject from a minimum distance of four feet and that will become apparent as we go through. So you need an area where you can have the camera four feet from the subject at least. That's called camera to subject distance. That's the first thing. The second thing is you are going to have to use controlled light. Because the lighting in, in areas vary all day, every day, according to the time of day, unless you're in a, I guess, unless you're in a completely dedicated room, um, you need what's called a strobe, which is a very powerful flash. Um, because it's mains powered, it's intense, it's very bright, and it has a very fast recycle time. Flash, which is on camera, has insufficient power um, because the photo will vary as the ambient light changes. So what we want is we want the strobe to overpower the ambient light. That's the first thing. And the second thing is we don't want the ambient light to really have an influence uh, at all on what we're doing. We only want the strobe light to have an influence. So step three is you're going to need a camera and a place to stand. Now the camera, you can probably use the camera that you have, although Woodrow has a standard one that he uses, or standard types that we use. Um, you need to choose a distance between four and 10 feet. You must choose that camera subject distance and it must never vary. You have to stand in the same position every time um, and you need to mark it somehow or I put my back to the door in my room so I know I'm at the same distance. You choose a camera to subject distance and, and stick to it. And then if you, after that, the lens, you choose a lens that frames the face as you want with a bit of a border. And zoom lenses are fine for this. Um, but uh, it's, it's better to have a prime lens that you don't have to change the cropping every time. And you set the file format as RAW. So these, Woodrow will talk a little bit about this later. You then need to set the aperture and Woodrow sets it to F11, which gives you an adequate depth of field for what we want, tip of the nose to the ear with rhinoplasty. 
uh, and therefore it focuses on the areas that we need to see. Um, the other thing about um, uh, that is that F11 will allow ambient lighting and it will allow flashlighting, and, and we understand that, but the next thing to do is to hit the, set the shutter speed. Now, Woodrow sets it to a shutter speed of 1 over 160, and why is that? Because for two reasons, it's below the flash sync speed, which I won't go into, but it means that the flash is fully open, the, shut, the shutter's fully open for the duration of the exposure. You get very sharp in images and movement won't have much of an influence but it also virtually eliminates the effect of ambient light. So if, you, if your dedicated area changes throughout the day, it doesn't matter on the exposure of the photograph because um, shutter speed affects uh, ambient light, whereas aperture uh, doesn't so much. Um, and step, step six is set the ISO. The ISO on the camera is set to 100. That's the lowest setting for most cameras. And with an ISO of 100, the image will be sharp because of sufficient light entering the camera. And the sensor is saturated with light. And no amplification of the signal is necessary. Therefore, you'll get the sharpest image with the least digital noise. Now, these are a lot of technical things, but they're things that I now understand um, when I'm doing. So we'll get on to photographs now. The, the main thing to understand is the myth of lens focal length. And this has probably been my biggest understanding is that focal lengths makes no difference to the photograph taken. Everybody says, oh, you can't use an iPhone or you can't use this camera or you can't use a wide angle lens because you'll finish up with a with distorted photography, which is complete nonsense. Um, the effect of optical zoom is the same as digital zoom, is the same as cropping, is the same as a crop sensor, is the same as using a, a 24 millimeter lens as, as, as opposed to a, a 135 millimeter lens. The only thing that optical zoom has as an advantage is pixel count. So if you take a photo with a wide angle lens from 10 feet, the face will be very small. So when you crop it, there won't be as many pixels as if you use the advantage of optical zoom. All right. Now this is the most important slide in the whole deck. And I'll read it out for the podcast listeners. That distance is the most important. Camera to subject distance is all that matters. And that is why you must choose a camera to subject distance and stick with it. Photos taken at different distances can never be matched. So that's the biggest problem that we have, different distances. And let's explain it. Now, the podcast listeners won't be able to um, see these photographs, but the YouTube ones will, but it's worth looking at the photographs. What I've got on the screen are, are six different photographs taken at a constant distance of 150 centimetres or about five feet. I've taken one with a 134, Woodrow has actually, a 135mm lens, an 85mm lens, a 50mm lens, a 35mm lens, a 24mm lens and an 18mm lens. So all photographs have been taken from the same distance with the same, um, with, with a different focal length. Now let's crop all of those images and put them in the same square that they were. And if we look at the right-hand side, you'll see that all images are identical. There is no distortion. The images are the same size and they, they look the same. So you could compare it. And that's probably was my biggest misunderstanding and most people's biggest misunderstanding with photography. Distance is key. Now the next thing is let's, do, let's go the other way around. What about with a focal length constant and let's vary the distance? So now on the left-hand side, I've taken photographs from six feet, five feet, four feet, three feet, two feet, and one feet, but all with a 24 millimeter lens. Now let's crop all those images and we look at the right hand, uh, all of those images cropped to the same size, we'll see distortion occurs or perspective distortion. It's nothing to do with the lens, it's just it's the distance from the camera. So if you look at the top three photographs, they're taken at six, five and four feet. It's very difficult to see the difference between them. At about three feet, this distortion really takes effect. So as long as you can take a photograph from four feet or beyond, you should be okay. And most people cannot tell the difference between these photographs. So you need to take one from at least four feet away. And most selfies are taken shorter than that, which is why you get the distortion. Now this is one taken with an iPhone on the left, 
and with the, a Canon 90D on the right. Now the lighting's different because I've used Woodrow's ideal lighting setup on the right and the quality's different, but you'll see that with the iPhone and with the camera, as long as you take them from the same distance, the photos look fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Not that I would use an iPhone, but it just shows mm. so the distance is the issue. You've got two completely different modalities to take photographs. Now, why is this? At when you get to about four feet, the distortion is 4%. And when you get to uh, one foot, the distortion is 17%. What do I mean by that? I've taken two photographs here with rulers, one on the tip of the nose and one at the lateral canthus. On the left-hand image, it's taken at about, it's taken at um, 120 centimetres or four feet, and you'll see the rulers look roughly the same length. When we go to 30 centimetres, in other words, get close up, the, the, the ruler that's on the tip of the nose compared to the ruler that's at the lateral canthus is much bigger. And that's the distortion that we see with uh, a close-up photograph. So um, what about Vectra and 3D imaging systems? So this is the quality of the image that we get using Woodrow's system, uh, constant, uh, constant, constant distance and lighting and all that set up, and I won't go into any more of that. And we take standard photographs, like, uh, and I'm just going through the photographs now that we get. I use the Vectra for planning purposes, but it's insufficient quality for seeing befores and afters, I find. It's not as good as 2D photography. It does communicate the problem, but there are certain distortions. Um, so I use it as a planning tool. So this is the uh, pre-op on the left and the post-op on the right, or what I want to be the post-op on the right, and then I can compare that to what I've projected. Same with this, looking from below the worm's eye view. This is my pre-op and this is what my projected post-op is and then post-operatively I can see what I've done. So it's a good planning tool for me but as far as a before and after uh, tool is concerned it's not that it's not that great. So it's important to get these images as high quality as you can and I'm just going through a few images now to show what I'm doing. The problem the second problem I then had was if you look at this one, the patient's not looking in exactly the same direction. In other words, the head's slightly tilted. So we thought, how are we going to get the patients to look in the right direction? Because it's very difficult, as we know, standard 45 degrees, most people can't work that out. Um, and if you look at the photograph on the right here, on the left one, you can see it's almost perfectly lateral. And on the right one, the post-operative view, I can see a bit of eyebrow on the left, the far eyebrow, which means she's slightly turned towards me. So that's not right either. And from the front, the right hand, the left hand, the pre-op, she's slightly turned and the other one she's... So you can't actually get them as perfect as you would like. So I'll go through my studio. This is just the setup of my studio, but I'll go straight to the diagram of my studio. The room's 2.5 by 2 metres. It's quite small. I now have five mirrors dedicated to each angle. Um, the mirrors are 113 centimetres from the floor. Um, which means you can shoot someone from four feet one inches to six feet nine inches in the old, in the old vernacular. Um, uh, I shoot from five feet. Magnification distortion is only three point three percent, which is indistinguishable. But most people can't pick that up. And the mirrors are set at zero, ninety, and fifty-two point five. One of forty-five. We found forty-five was just too much. Fifty-two point five seems better. And we get the strobe, and we have twin monitors. So that's the room. Patient stands here, the mirror, the camera is there, uh, and then two monitors on the desk and I store my cameras here. And these are the little mirrors patient looks at. My mirror's not, my room's asymmetric, so the 52.5 degree mirror is there and the other one's way over there. But the patient just turns and looks straight at them. And it, it's enabled, and that's a panorama of my room with the mirrors standing there so I can I just did a panorama with my iPhone and the patient just centers themselves on the mirror and they can we can usually get perfect shots that way and they're the computers on the far side and when I'm matching photos having two screens is ideal that's the strobe in the ceiling which is not pointed at the patient but reflects off the walls and that's my setup for matching photographs because 
I can never hold the camera perfectly straight, but as long as the patient is perfectly straight, I should be okay. And that's just the view from the back. Um, so the patient there looking at the mirrors, uh, which gives me the ability to get perfect um, angles. So this is, you think sometimes that the photograph is good, and if you look at this photograph on the left, but he's not square, that's square. And in rhinoplasty, square is what it's all about. If you want to see whether you've moved the tip or how straight you've got it, you have to have them square. And these two images in the left one, he's only turned a few degrees, but it's, it's perceptible when you see what a good photograph is. The thing is so fascinating, eh? Well, the, the, I, I mean, it took me a while to work it out and there was a lot of mucking around setting them up, but, geez, I'll tell you what, it's gold. And it halves the time for you taking the photographs. The patient just locks into position. It's great. I love it. So the only thing they do is tilt their head a bit. You've just up, up or down. You've just got to work, you know, say, look at yourself naturally, not look. I've got a few tricks a for police, that. Not a police photograph. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's what we I, I want to know um, about is, is up and down because it's all in 3D, actually. Okay, so Peter, carry on. Go for it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pick it up. Okay. So this is the quality of the photographs um, that, that we can get. Now, even with the best photography and everything, it's not perfect. You'll see the backgrounds are not exactly the same, but they're pretty close because there is a gradient on the background, as you can see. So it's a little bit darker in the bottom right as opposed to the top left, which means that when you put the photos side by side, there's a little bit of a gradient between the two because the right side is a bit darker, but that's all right. I think it's very important in rhinoplasty photography to be able to see both ears because you need to be able to get the head level and tilt at the same side. So I look at the lateral canthus compared to the ears and that will tell me that I have the same tilt on the patient's head. So that's uh, the straight on view, the smiling view, 45 degrees or 52 and a half is what we use smiling and we can get them almost the same each time and I'm just going through these for the podcast listeners just a before and an after and, and how close we can get and even with that perfection you'll see on that right hand one I can still see a bit of eyebrow which you just I just don't pick everything up when I'm taking the photographs I'm getting better at it but that's that's the OCD one percent as opposed to worrying yeah. about all the other things that you know you have to worry about yeah more. yeah well once you make me so so good at taking photos, Woodrow, I see everything. <laughs> That's your fault. I'm blaming you totally. All right, so, um, and we keep going, and then we can get images the same, before and afters, very, very similar. And I think it would be hard to say that I'm trying to distort what I've done with my surgery, with my photograph. I think uh, it's pretty close to being, to being where you want it to be as far as just communicating the surgical intervention. So the other thing I can do with Woodrow help me with was we, we, we use Lightroom, but um, I mean, any any program is right, but we match the photos in Lightroom. I then export them with a watermark. And if you look at the photos, you'll see in the background, there's a watermark on the background, which is just my logo and Peter Callan underneath it, which I fade out on the face, but it's very good as an embedded watermark to um, have that and I can just export them directly with the watermark. I can also embed a lot of metadata in them, which only includes the copyright, keywords, caption, contact details, and of course you wanna make sure that there's no patient details in there at all. But um, using Lightroom and sometimes using Adobe Bridge or something like that, you can change your uh, metadata, which is another thing that Google searches on, of course. Otherwise it's completely de-identified. So there's an old adage that I heard once at a, um, a meeting that um, when somebody was showing a fairly average result from a, from a rhinoplasty and the, um, and the host who I think was on Rico Roboti at the time said, after the, after the uh, surgeon said that the patient was happy, Enrico said the patient was happy because they didn't know they could be happier. And I think in photography, it's applies that says, you think you're good until you find out what good is. So um, thanks for that, Cameron. I'll uh, I'll get out of that for you. Hey, Peter, thank you. That's fantastic. My That's very interesting. Um, I thought that was quite technical, um, but now we're really going to hear from the professor himself, Woodrow Wilson. Tell us, <laughs> tell us more, Woodrow. 
Um, well, just before I open up my slide deck, a question for, for both of you is, you know, before you go down this road of all the technical side and the perfection with lenses and optics and room layouts and stuff, how has it improved your consultations with your, your patients, like both when they're hesitant before surgery and when they come back and they've got the result that they wanted? How has that helped you, Peter? You mean in communicating the results yeah. to them? Oh, well, I mean, patients love before and afters and, and the fact that I can knock them up and put them up for them straight away, they love. Um, and uh, patients do forget what they were like beforehand and and I'm sure Cameron would agree with that. Um, patients will say, there's two, there's two things they say. One is before the surgery they go, I don't want anybody to notice. And then after the surgery, they go, nobody's noticed. And you go, yeah, well, that's because you look normal, right? If you want to look abnormal, that's the only way people will notice. Nobody remembers what your nose looked like beforehand. But they do, if you show them a before and after photograph, then they would. So, Woodrow, my, my answer to that question is the 3D vector morphing is great for trying to teach, show the patients what results could be like, mm. but it sucks in terms of if I want to be presenting or using photographs in a more scientific way. Um, it's mm. not nearly the quality of the 2D, and that's why I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more about this clinical imaging program you guys have. Um, I think coming from outside of the industry as a commercial photographer originally, I was quite flabbergasted with all these different imaging devices in the medical industry because a lot of them look very fancy. They've got all the terminology and the measurements and stuff, but what they communicate image quality wise is sometimes very, very bad. And I think like there's a, definitely a role for 3D, as Peter says, and it's a fantastic simulation tool. But it's a simulation. It is not a photograph. It is not evidence. It's not, you know, uh, uh, standard before and after in a like a medical legal sense. So um, often people will go and spend a lot of money on some fancy tools that they could have just done a well with some basic equipment to begin with. Okay, so thank you for uh, letting me discuss this with you guys today. Um, Fun fact, I'm, I'm not actually qualified in photography. I haven't studied anything. I just fell into it a long time ago. And I've actually been really humbled by being able to bring some photographic science to this industry. And what started off as a side project is now my, my main project. Um, but that said, my background uh, is commercial photography. And as it stands now, I am a trainer for Allegan Medical Institute. And I'm part of the communications team for a really amazing charity called Interplast, which I can tell you about a bit later. So I'll start with one of my favorite people in the whole world, Carl Sagan, who had this you know, amazing quote back in the day, and I'm sure he wasn't the first to come up with it, uh, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, and I think in this industry, there are so many claims because the cosmetic industry is moving so quickly. And whilst today is about rhinoplasty, I think a lot of this will apply to all facets of cosmetic and uh, plastic surgery. Um, topics we're going to cover in this short presentation uh, is a little bit about the why, uh, the science, and the how to do it. Some topics within that is going to be things like resolution, white balance, what uh, a good data regime is, or why you should use one light source instead of uh, two, uh, the role of social media, body dysmorphia, and I think what I mentioned at the start of the podcast was that I came in initially as, okay, let's do photography better, but then that's soon splintered into, okay, what's wrong with the industry, what other impacts within a clinic is photography having, marketing, social media, patient understanding, journey, all that sort of stuff. And it's really been a wild ride and it's, it's very, very interesting. So when we go into the how, we're going to talk about the room. Peter's done a great uh, demonstration of his room setup and that's definitely the, uh, the, the, the ultimate goal for most installations is to get to something like uh, Peter's room. But there's definitely other rooms that are smaller or larger, or sometimes if it's not a, a surgical room, 
Yeah, they'll just have a cupboard or an area. But the main thing is to have a dedicated area. And we'll go into some of those um, options today as well. Um, if you guys have questions, please jump in at any time because I love getting questions. Um, this is a short slide, which I'm trying to be a little bit cheeky, but everyone thinks they can take good photos. And with automatic and iPhones and the technology that exists today, it's actually really easy to get a great photograph uh, on a recreational holiday family sort of way. I'm amazed all the time at what phones can do. But if you want to get into taking proper photographs, and I say proper as in reproducible in a cosmetic sense or in a clinical sense, there's a bit of a valley that you have to cross. And often in that valley, there's a lot of fog, and those are unknown unknowns. But you have to go through that. And it's as soon as you step into the valley, it's a very steep fall where you're going to learn things like the photography science and how to train your staff, how to have protocols for the team, what to do with social media, as Peter covered with angles and how important they are, or time management around photos, how to network those images, and what the hell is the cloud. So we're going to cover very lightly some of those topics today, which will hopefully spark everyone's interest to try clear some of that fog. A little bit about the why is firstly the boring stuff, the legal side, is that you know APRA, the regulated health agency in Australia, and it's quite similar in most uh, Commonwealth countries, that they will say you don't want images to be misleading and you want to try and reproduce the images as clearly as possible. And they'll give you some really basic tips and tricks, like make sure the lighting and contrast is consistent, but they don't explain to you how to do that. So it's a bit of a wild west, and there are a lot of papers out there, and me and Peter have been through quite a few to prepare for this uh, talk. But a lot of them are either really outdated, way too technical, so that no one actually wants to implement what they're trying to teach, or they're just flat out wrong. Another reason why to uh, take it seriously is the role of social media. And it's absolutely exploded over the last five years. And one of the key findings of a study that Allegan did is that Facebook is obviously the leading source of information with 82% on Instagram and uh, lower 56% on uh, Snapchat. But just to show you the pace at which uh, people, patients are using social media to find their clinicians and how quickly it's changing. 2018, when this was done, TikTok didn't exist. And now TikTok is the biggest thing ever. And you'll see a lot of surgeons on TikTok. So my advice would be, don't really worry about the platform. Start with good photos and you can jump on any platform that comes down the line. Please don't get on TikTok, Peter. No. <laughs> um, so the role of social media can be a really powerful one when it's done correctly. And Peter's a great example of this, as is a few other clients that I've worked with, where they have really good education campaigns and photos, good high quality before and afters, are what lead those education campaigns. And I really want to stress the word education and not marketing. There are some rules around what you can and can't market in uh, in this industry and a lot of people don't follow those rules but my belief is that if you are educating and you're doing it in a tactful way through objective clinical photos you can lower a lot of barriers with uh, potential patients and gain trust because they can see one the results that you you and your team are able to achieve but not that and that there isn't any like deceptive uh, techniques to show those results and that is true in, uh, you know, uh, rhinoplasty, but across all sorts of modalities in cosmetic uh, industry. The, the antithesis of that on uh, social media is the rise of influences and people marketing stuff with before and afters, but it's it's plainly just fake, and it's it's quite scary for me being a photographer seeing this stuff and now being a father seeing this sort of stuff because it's moving so quickly where you know young women are sort of figuring out how they feel about themselves through social media and they are constantly subjected to all this fake uh, imagery and that has a bit of a feedback loop with body dysmorphia and perception of self 
it's getting so bad now that you know the, the softwares can do it in real time and they can do it on video. So people used to think a photograph could be edited in Photoshop. Now a photograph can be edited in real time with something like Facetune, and that's you know the shape of the face, shape of their nose, distance between the eyes, everything. It's it it scares me. But if I took a, a snapshot of you know, some surgeons' social media, and I've got some uh, before and afters now from big names around the world, you know, big clinics, professors, uh, you know, hot, hot surgeons, as they're called on TikTok sometimes. And they, their photos are not just non-standard, but they're terrible. There's a complete disregard for any sort of attempt at standardization of the two photographs. And it, I find it really uh, shameful. Um, I can't judge on the quality of surgery, but I can judge on the quality of photos. And they're all very abysmal. But there's a there's a, uh, a, a distinct lack of effort here. And my experience over the last few years is that those who put effort into it really get uh, good rewards for both themselves and their patients. So I love science. Let's go into a little bit of the science. Um, there is a lot of subgroups of what you need to do in order to get this right. And I try to shield potential clients or people I'm consulting from a lot of the details, but there has to be uh, a reason as to why I teach what I teach. And I'm gonna go into a little bit today. So there's really five main things that uh, are important when setting up your photography room. There is your exposure, which is the first thing people think of. And that would be like things like your camera settings, your room layout and your lighting. There would be the positions of how you're going to position a patient, where you're going to position yourself, and the expressions that a patient would go through, whether it is for rhinoplasty or whether it's for non-surgical treatments or whether it's for breast augmentation. There is a set uh, position list you should go through to get you, uh, you know, the best baseline of that patient's anatomy. There's protocol questions in terms of when are images taken, at what intervals, and who's taken the photographs, and what are the what is the consent process to those uh, photographs? Because it's all very well having a happy patient, but if you don't have a consented image, you can't use it. So there's a bit of a process to that. The big uh, gaping time management hole in a lot of practices is data management and how those images are handled, backed up, kept secure from those who want to try uh, steal or hack your servers, but then also made accessible from the people who should be using those photographs, like your social media people or like your surgeons in consultation. And then to close the loop, there is education, which is the role of obviously scientific papers and websites for marketing, but more and more it's social media. And the trying to keep up with the pace and appetite of social media can be quite daunting if you don't have a proper protocol for it. All of that becomes a system. And what I teach or install or sell isn't, uh, you know, a lot of it anyone can do. They don't need me to do. And there's definitely guidelines out there that they could follow. I've just tried to form a very economic and efficient way of doing it. So some of the exciting science that justifies why we do certain camera settings. So we'll talk about one first is white balance. Simply put, uh, white balance is the color of white under different color temperatures. What does that mean? So in a house, you would have different color temperature light bulbs. So for instance, a, a tungsten bulb is a bit more yellow. And on the color temperature scale, that is usually around 3200 Kelvin. Or if you uh, have a fluorescent light, that's more around 6500, 7500 degrees to Kelvin. That actually corresponds to the color temperature of our sun, which is around 5500 degrees Kelvin. And believe it or not, we've evolved to perceive white under our sun's uh, color temperature. And the problem there is that our brains are really good at evolving uh, under different, uh, uh, sorry, our brains are very good at adapting under different lighting circumstances. So if you go into a warm colored room with tungsten light, your brain will slowly shift white to look white under tungsten light. And you suddenly go outside into daylight, everything looks a little bit pink. The problem is cameras can't do that and they have to be programmed. And if you get a a proper camera, and I'm going to suggest some models at the end of the slide deck, is 
from there you can tell the camera, okay, every time you take a photograph, you need to expect 5,500 degrees Kelvin, which is white. And the great thing is if you combine that with one of the strobes that uh, Peter suggested before, it's going to output light at 5,500 degrees Kelvin every single time it goes off, which means if that's the only light source in a room, your color temperature of your skin is going to be correct. There's not going to be too blue or too, too yellow. And there's a, a visual there of the same skin that's a little bit too blue and a little bit too yellow. So it's a really important setting to have. And that actually can correspond, correspond to um, you know, trying to get accurate skin tones across all these different population de demographics. And we live in a very multicultural uh, country in Australia, and it's really interesting to see all these different skin types. But you need the correct white balance in order to capture those skin types correctly. The next thing is building on what uh, Peter showed you with facial distortion, and I think it's a really uh, great argument that we've got and that Peter uh, captured there with his slide deck. We're showing the differences in distortion that uh, the distance can play on a patient's face. And we, one of the papers we did in research in this, one doctor actually advocated that we should start doing surgery according to the distorted selfie version that the patient preferred from their phones. And I thought that was just abhorrent. But the main thing is that if people are using mobile phones to take selfies, it's usually very close up and there's a, a vast amount of distortion that happens there. So there's a big disconnect between that and then when they come in and see an undistorted view of themselves um, in, a, in a clinic, and you've got to tell them, okay, your distorted view that you're doing with your phone isn't real. So don't judge what you need based on that. And this next slide is the same images that Peter was using, but I've just animated them. So you should see as the uh, the slide goes on, you should see the shape of the face change depending on the distance. And it's really a dramatic effect. The next important thing is the angle of light. All too often uh, people have light come in uh, perpendicular to the, the face. So the light source is point light source aimed straight at the patient, whether it's a ring light or whether it's a, a flash. And what that tends to do is it makes the, flat, the face very flat and it takes away all the three-dimensionality to the per person's face. I've, since I started this, advocated for having one light source with a little bit of a, a steeper angle uh, sort of like two o'clock on a cloudy day, which gives you one benefit of some shadowing to be able to show some depth to the face because our brains perceive light and dark as uh, distance. So if something's darker, it's usually further away. Something's lighter, it's closer to you. So that gives you a nice middle even ground when you look at a patient's face to judge the nose or to judge their mouth or mid face, upper face, whatever it is. You've got this even uh, diffused shadow. Another reason, and in the slide deck here, I've got, um, I'm not going to tell you who took this, but it's quite controversial, and I've, uh, there is some surgeons out there that will use uh, two light sources, and what that can do is actually really introduce these dramatic shadows into the face, and like the distortion that comes from a, a lens or a distance, or it comes from the angle of light or from the, the color of light, having multiple light sources can introduce these distortions into a face where it introduces a problem that will, the product will fix that didn't really exist to begin with. So you really have to be careful with how you light someone's face. Another important point is background color, and I get asked this all the time. And my first answer is making sure that the background is consistent, whatever it is. So whether that's white or black or blue, just keep it the same with each time. From there, you can get into the nuances, okay, what's going to be the best color separation between a patient and the background? And I think medical blue, and you might have a better answer for me, Peter, as to why this started all the way back uh, when they started taking photographs for clinical studies. But for me, blue is a really clear separation with every population skin type because no one has that sort of pigment in their skin. 
So it really creates a nice contour difference between the background and the subject. It also has the added benefit in more modern uh, digital management that that color can be removed very quickly. So you can, you know, one click in most programs, take away that color, and then you've got a transparency where it gives you more flexibility when you're designing a before and after with that uh, clinical photo. One layer deeper than that is the problem I find with white or black is that it distorts, again, our, our depth perception. And uh, I think before Allegan's time, cool sculpting using black backgrounds was very smart because it made everyone look skinnier. And I think Kim Kardashian did the, uh, the, the opposite effect by wearing white to look like she had a bigger bum. But uh, these trends come and go, but I would say blue is a really good color to pick. One of the problems with people using mobile phones goes into sensors and a even a rudimentary DSLR or mirrorless camera from 10 years ago still has a sensor or a digital sensor that captures light that is four, five, six times larger than even the best mobile phones now. And why that sensor is important is the bigger the sensor, the more light it can collect without distorting the light that comes into it. You have to imagine that on a small mobile phone, it's doing really incredible um, optical bending of light to get into a tiny sensor on the back of your phone. But when that happens, you lose detail, you lose color fidelity. And often a mobile phone now is more expensive than a, a proper DSLR camera. So by having uh, a mobile phone as your primary uh, capture tool, you're not able to reproduce the same image twice because you can't program that mobile phone. It's essentially on automatic every time. So top five things to do when you are gonna start this journey is to find a space. Uh, Peter, what was the measurements of your room, roughly? Uh, 2.5 2. meters by two meters. Yeah, that's a that's a great size room, and it, it's got enough uh, space for the background, which is usually about 110 centimeters across, um, as well as having space for a consulting table and computers. If you go much smaller than that, you can't really fit in the practical things of, uh, you know, a chair for the patient to put their clothes, or uh, hang hang a robe, or having a, a screen to be able to display what you're doing. When I started this, most Clinical setups were very cumbersome. They had a lot of equipment that was very intimidating for staff that really required a professional photographer. It also took up a lot of space, and real estate is very expensive in a clinic. So one of the reasons why um, using a, a, a one of the reasons why we started using a flash on a ceiling is because it takes up no floor space, but then it has the added benefit of no one can touch it, so that the angle, the intensity of that light never changes and you actually use the room as diffusion which in my mind is really smart because you don't need multiple soft boxes to diffuse light between the light source and the subject and it also means that your photography room can be pretty it can have natural light because the strobe light is controlling the the exposure but then you can mix it up with a treatment or consultation room depending on your room size to reiterate, with uh, subject distance, you really want at least 1.2 meters to get as little distortion as possible. And at that distance, we, when we install, we sell a 50 millimeter lens, which a 50 millimeter lens on a particular uh, camera body sensor size, in this case, a uh, Canon 80D or 90D, um, Every other manufacturer has an equivalent sensor size called APS-C. That 50 millimeter becomes 75, which gets you a really good uh, field of view on a patient. So you can go take a photograph from the clavicle to just above the top of the head. We sell markers. You can do this yourself with uh, tape, but we try to make it, make it pretty, having a, um, a face marker so that you can stick that to the floor so you know where to stand, so where the camera position needs to be. And 
a disk for the patient to rotate around with a numbering system, which is like what Peter's done with his uh, mirrors, where patients turn to look at a number. Peter has gone just one step above that, which I need to uh, roll out <laughs> um, with uh, having mirrors, but it's a brilliant idea. I have to say to everyone now when I say when I train them, I say, okay, get the patient to look at the number, and that's 90% of the way there. That last 10% is going to be up to the photographer or the clinician to make sure that they can see different angles correctly, which I'll show you in a couple of slide decks. Before you, uh, in Peter's deck, we talk, spoke a little bit about, he spoke a little bit about the angle of the head. The way we got around this is when you are standing at 1.2 meters with a 75 millimeter equivalent le uh, focal length, and you're aiming at the patient and you start the patient looking at uh, in a profile to their uh, left, there's grid lines that you can enable on the back of the camera. So it sort of functions like an iPhone with a big screen and you can overlay those grid lines and certain anatomical lines. Conveniently, the Frankfurt plane from the uh, ear to the tip of the nose lines up with the middle grid line in a camera at 1.2 meters at 75 millimeters. And if you do that, you can over, overlap that, and then you can see if the patient's head is tilting too far up or too far down. And it gives you a great way of knowing that you are the correct distance and the correct height in relation to the patient. A lot of people are using this uh, quite effectively, and it's a really good way of starting your first photo. And then if you start that way, when the patient turns to the next one in the sequence, which is uh, the, the oblique or 45 to 52 degree angle, you'll quickly notice if their head is uh, tilting or if one ear is lower than the other. The sequence that we teach, and uh, this is you know, diff slight nuanced differences between non-surgical and surgical, but you want to get you know, five standard views every time because patients have a very uh, subjective view of their face and there's certain parts of their face that they can never see objectively. So you'll get that first angle, which is the patient looking at uh, number one in profile, then they'll turn to number two on the wall, which is an oblique angle. And you need to position that number two at around 52 degrees so that you can see both in acanthus because when you've got different population types, they will have different size noses. And it's a really good trick to be able to standardize the photos between different, different people and different population types. And then the same person when they come back. Continuing on from that, you need number three, the patient looking directly at you. And Peter really uh, went into great detail of how to make that absolutely square. And, th and that square is important to show their asymmetry because a lot of people aren't aware of their asymmetry. And it's a really good highlighting tool. I don't know if you've done this yet, Peter, in a consult, is when you flip an image horizontally, and you show them just how dominant one side of the face is. To, to, to finish the sequence, you do the, the second oblique and then the second profile. Just a, a close-up photo. My wife will hate me for sharing this photograph, but all too often people will meet the, the tip of the nose to the, the, the far cheek, which was what I was taught when I first started this when, um, you know, many years ago when I was asking for guidance on what the status quo was. And for me, the problem there is that you hide a lot of the anatomy, especially in someone with a big nose. You can't see tear trough or nasolabial fold, or if you are an injector, you can't see OG curve or mid-cheek projection or, you know, volume deficiencies. Something else. That That's one of the one of the reasons we went to fifty two and a half to mm. forty five was just too much. Another uh, important feature that I think is left out in positioning, especially when it comes to rhinoplasty, is how the nose changes when people animate. Often, um, I'll just play an animation. I'll just play an animation slide here where these are. Um, you know, injectable animations of whistling, smiling, frowning, um, and doing a big smile. But even in a young patient, and this model is only 23 or 24 at the time, you can see how different uh, the shape of her nose is between when she does a big smile and when she's relaxed. 
or how the tip would change in profile. That's something you mentioned to me a while back, Peter. Like if you get someone to smile in profile and you can see how a nose tip would, would droop. And just to round it out, data management is such an important part too. We sell uh, an additional piece of software on top of Adobe Lightroom, which helps to, to manage uh, the clinical photograph journey. But essentially, by having a tethered capture workflow, and that means no memory cards, but actually connecting the camera to the computer means that you can have that image instantly available, instantly backed up, and instantly there to consult with, whether it's in that room or another one. I often get asked what sort of equipment you, you need, and I'll just give you a description of some of the basics. If you're getting a camera, some of the best models in terms of quality, reliability, um, is the Canon 90D or the Canon 70D uh, or the Canon RP. You could go to a more pro level if you wanted the Canon R5 or the Canon R6. Entry-level lens would be the 50mm USM f1.8, and a more pro level would be the 85mm RF lens. If you're just starting out, get in a 470EX light, uh, which is a speed light attachment um, on, on your camera itself. Or if you want a standardized pro level, that would be the D-Light 4RX. As you go up, you have to imagine that the more you pay, the more reliable, the more robust, the longer it'll last, and the less um, variability you'll get. So one of the big reasons to get a fixed light like Peter has is that no one can change the exposure values. On a speed light attached to the camera, those exposure values can change depending on how much charge is in the batteries or how frequently you press the, the shutter. So if you get the right equipment at the beginning, that will last you for years and it'll be reliable. Um, I know I've gone over time, but I'll just summarize. I, I would suggest that you take photography seriously for your business's bottom line. That if you install some protocols for your team, it's the same way they will operate in a laser machine. They need to be trained on how to use the camera equipment. And if there's a protocol in place, they can follow it, depending on if they're an old team member or a new team member, there's protocol for them to follow. You have to get signed consent for every photo session that you take. Patient privacy is the responsibility of the clinician, so making sure that the patient is aware of what the image is taken for and where it will be stored and how it will be used. The right equipment will get you the right results. Think about the cost of bad photography, and that might be a really good result that you get that you can't market or use because it's not captured correctly. Photography can, uh, in my opinion, control the narrative of the branding of your clinic and the philosophy of your clinic and the sort of results that you get for your patients. If you're going to use your mobile phone, make sure you don't use the selfie. Use the rear camera because it's typically got more detail than the front camera. But then my next point is don't use your phone or an iPad or a tablet, especially if you're going to expect uh, the consistent results every time. Stock imagery is another problem we see everywhere, where stock imagery is selling before and afters. Uh, it's not your results. It's not your clinician's results. So it doesn't sell the expertise of the team. And if you give consistent guidance to your patients by having a protocol for them to go through, whether that's the mirrors or a positioning system or where they stand, you'll get consistent results and you'll build a good relationship with them too because you'll look confident in what you're doing. Um, so that's my, my talk. Thank you very much for listening. And um, yes, over to you, Cameron, if you've got any questions. No, Woodrow, that was fantastic. Eh? Um, I so appreciate that. I mean, you guys have both exceptionally well explained things. So I have two final comments. The one question I have for you, Peter, is how do people get hold of you to be able to ask you questions or come and see what your setup is? Um, well, my website's just my name, um, petercallan.com.au, and uh, you can contact me on there. And uh, my email is just peter at petercallan.com.au, so um, that's an easy way to contact me. And uh, I'm happy to chat. Um, um, and I'll give you any details there, and uh, I'll give you my phone number on the on that rather than give it on this because. Awesome. Thank you. I won't have a pen with them, so, but they'll probably remember my name. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, Woodrow, from your side, I mean, you, you're based in Australia. Um, are you an international brand? How do our listeners around the world in North America, South America, Asia, Africa, Europe, how do they get hold of you? Um, and how do you guys, are you able to help people with trying to access clinicalimaging.com.au from around the world? Um, look, the best way to get hold of me uh, personally is just on my Instagram, which is clinicalimaging underscore systems. Or if you go to my clinicalimaging.com.au website, there's a wealth of free tutorials um, as well as uh, like consultation videos. And I actually give away a lot of information for free where people can start themselves just to get the basics right. When they're ready to take it to another level, we do a remote consult through the website and we sell packages all around the world. So we've got clinics in North America, uh, Canada, the UK, South Africa, which I'm very proud of, um, and as well as over Australia and New Zealand. So I don't get much sleep because my time zones start very early for Eastern Seaboard and New Zealand, and then very late for when Perth goes to bed. <laughs> Well, from my side, uh, one thing, one thing I would say, Cameron, is that the thing that was—I mean, there were quite technical talks, but the thing is, Woodrow had got me set up, so it was all I had to do was take the photo. So that's the beauty of it. Um, everything else is taking. It's like landing a plane. You just land the plane because you know the undercarriage is down. You know that the flaps are set. You know the um, same with that. Everything's set up. Bang, and I fire mm. it. And Woodrow doesn't pay me a commission either. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we must get him to do that. Well, guys, from, from my side and from the listeners around the world, we really, really appreciate you guys taking the time to teach us these things. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing the results from around the world when people actually get a good 2D clinical imaging system. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you, thank you Cameron. Thank you. Wow, that was good, eh? Really? That was...